Deadwood Soundwell. You remember a lesson about the balance? A lesson not just karate only, lesson for whole life. We do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. Here on the street, in competition, a man confronts you, he's the enemy. The reel is finished, the house lights are up. It's time to examine The Karate Kid as the first part of our ongoing series of influential films. This is Fields of Glory, and I'm Biggs. And I am Aaron. And Biggs, we watched Karate Kid. And I am pumped about this, because this movie was a big part of my childhood, and I had not seen it for decades, plural. And revisiting an old movie is always an adventure. Real quickly before we start, when did you first see this movie? What was it like to watch it again? I saw this movie in Billings when I was five or six. And the first thing I did was go out to play karate with my brother and I crane kicked him in the face. And my dad uses that <laughs> against me with the grandkids all the time. So, How many children worldwide were accidentally crane kicked in the face and or groin because of this movie? This is a study that needs to be done. I'm going to say millions <laughs> off of a guess. <laughs> yeah, there are several zeros after the digit at the front of this number. That's <laughs> what I'm going to say. Uh, I can't remember the first time I saw it, but I, I told you the most memorable time when I watched it was at a sleepover at a gym. This like local gym would have this like lock-in where the parents could send all their kids and you'd play racquetball night and get all ridiculously sweaty and go swimming and all that and eat popcorn and junk food. And then they made us watch this movie. And I remember just being blown away by the end of it and just being like, I want a trophy. I want to win things. This was probably the first movie that I ever saw that really made me like want to compete at something. I don't know that that was ever something I thought about before I saw this movie. The year that this movie came out is 1984. It cost $8 million to make. It grossed $91 million. That's not counting any of the sequels or the contemporary spinoff. Cobra Kai right now. As I like to say, if you give me 8 million and I give you 91 million and a franchise, you're feeling pretty good about the choices you've made. <laughs> well, especially in the 80s, that's what you want to do is you want to have a hit film so that you can just put out part two, part three, the next Karate Kid, the reboot with Jaden Smith. Like you want to be able to do all of those things. Back to the future of Karate Kid 6. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, also, John Avildsen, is that how you say this guy's name? I don't know. I think so, yeah. There's a, a whole book called The Films of John Avildsen that I'm going to talk about uh, throughout this entire episode. And there's uh, a chapter on the Karate Kid. Larry Powell and Tom Garrett uh, wrote this book. This dude made some big movies at the time when it comes to doing what you're talking about. And we're going to watch accidentally two of them in the beginning of this show. Not on purpose. We just tripped into this. We picked Karate Kid uh, because it's formative to like the two of us. Definitely to me. And we picked Rocky because it's formative to the industry. We can't get into Rocky too much right now, but we can talk about John Avildsen. What do you want to say about this guy making this movie? He pretty much sticks to the formula of Rocky, which is funny because if that was an accident, there was a different screenwriter. Uh -huh. But he stepped in and very clearly it's a thing he's already kind of done before. But it's the <laughs> subtle differences that really make it. Yeah. Rocky is not a mentorship kind of movie. Not mm -hmm. really. It's mm -hmm. more about a neighborhood hanging together and an individual in that. But in this one, it's more about finding balance in your life and finding 
the right teacher. We have an example of the wrong teacher and the right teacher for the kids in this. Correct. Yeah. I would say they're both wrong teachers, but the movie yes. wants us to think that one of them is right and the other one is wrong. This book chapter says kind of the same thing. When Abelson was given this movie, he was worried that people would call it the Karaki Kid because it was so similar. And one of the things that the chapter takes away that is different about it is that um, Miyagi plays a much bigger role in this movie than you see in Rocky. Obviously, Mickey exists and does stuff. Yeah, Mickey is not a huge part of Rocky's life. If anything, Mickey is a frustration in Rocky's life. So Interesting. Either way, franchises check. Tens of millions of dollars made with a fairly low production. Check. This is doing Hollywood very well. <laughs> well, it was. Now it has to cost <laughs> at least over $100 million right? and have the potential to take in a billion or the big companies aren't even touching it. Right. Now it is this on the scale of Apple and uh, Disney. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Also sure Netflix somewhere. In case there are people out there that have not seen this movie, Biggs, what is the plot? How would you summarize what happens in this film? Well, let's go to the tape, shall we? Daniel LaRusso moves from New York to Reseda. He goes to a beach party and crushes on Allie Mills, but is immediately beaten by her boyfriend, the black belt, Johnny Lawrence. As LaRusso tries to move in on Allie in subsequent months, Johnny and his friends continue to bully him. It culminates in a Halloween dance when they nearly kill him before he's rescued by the handyman in his apartment building, Mr. Miyagi. An old man jumps the fence and beats up a bunch of teenagers. Sorry, a metal, like award-winning veteran jumps over a fence and beats up a bunch of teenagers when he could have just said, hey, stop from the safety of the other side of the fence. That was heroic when I saw it as a kid. This time I was like, uh, Miyagi could be making better choices. Maybe you could call the police. <laughs> There's church turn on the lights and they don't have cell phones at the time but you can definitely say there are witnesses <laughs> it's also weird that Miyagi was trolling a schoolyard I'm just saying anyway <laughs> Miyagi reluctantly agrees to train Daniel and breaches an agreement with Johnny's sensei John Kreese that his students will leave him alone in return LaRusso must face them in the All Valley Karate Tournament Miyagi trains Daniel by doing chores around his house is must the word that we want to use he must face him or is this just another thing that Miyagi decided was gonna happen. He must because Kreese tells him he will send the kids after him and it'll be open season if he doesn't fight in the tournament. Interesting. Miyagi goes there first. Yes. And right. I don't know. But then it becomes a must. It's a threat by Kreese, right? As a pacifist, I'm gonna say it never becomes a must, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, in, in the terms of the film, it's a must, right? <laughs> the, the film is, again, leaning very hard to be like, well, they gotta fight now, otherwise what else do we do for Act 3? <laughs> Act three is someone saying, I've been persuaded, and it's over. <laughs> Miyagi trains Daniel by doing chores around his house, which is actually teaching him defensive blocks. Their bond grows. Larissa wins the first two rounds of the tournament. One of Kreese's students uses an illegal kick to take him out of commission. Miyagi magically heals his leg as he faces Lawrence in the finals. Kreese instructs Johnny to sweep his injured leg. Daniel gets back up and does a crane kick he saw Miyagi perform on a beach. It scores the winning point as Daniel is celebrated and Miyagi gives him a proud look. Yep. As I watched it this time, we're going to get into the standpoint here in two seconds, but there are so many parts of this movie that I just completely overlooked as a child that when you see it as an adult, you just start to ask so many questions. I definitely want to talk about Miyagi's like coaching him karate because he teaches him to like wax a thing and paint a thing and do something else. And, and then like when he attacks him, he just knows how to put all that together. And I understand muscle memory. I definitely understand that. But there's also something called like combinations and permutations and improvisation that goes into 
combat where you will have like triples and doubles and things. And, and, and you see some of this in the quick little moment where he tries to attack him. And Daniel is just like, Oh, I've learned karate by painting a fence. <laughs> just <Yeah>. like, whoa. <laughs> well, and the script writer went backwards on this. Like basically he knew karate. And so he was building that into it. I appreciate that. <laughs> I will say because you only have so much time to build it into the script. Understood. So the way that they do it is Miyagi keeps correcting him when he's doing the chores. And then when he goes to attack, he says, like, bring your hand down this way. And like he puts his hand at certain levels so that when he's going to paint the fence, it stops at certain parts without showing a montage of him getting better. They do that, which I think is kind of clever for the 80s. You're right. That's interesting. It is not a montage. Here's what I will say is that him knowing when he comes a little karate and just like practicing like kicking and stuff like that and wanting to learn how to punch and stuff like that. The the big overtone here, I think, is definitely that Miyagi is teaching him focus and discipline, probably a lot of humility and hubris and all of that is very necessary, I would imagine, to fight well. So I definitely see how that I felt like they cut a corner through a grocery store, as I like to say, and I understand we need to cut corners. And obviously this tournament is nanners. We're going to talk about that at the end. They they do the the tournament structure so well. They do the like opening rounds, fighting your way up, getting to the, the, the round before the big round. All that is so interesting. The the moment he heals Daniel as a kid, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so amazing. As a grown-up, I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) I'm going to be honest. Even as a kid, I didn't accept that moment. See, I was just blinded by the pump at that point. (laughs) So I used to joke around anytime somebody got hurt, I would go, hold on. And I would like slap my hands together and rub them, yeah. you know, and uh, everybody would kind of laugh except for the hurt kid because he was hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it continued to hurt a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is healthcare in America, though. I did appreciate that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the British athlete has like this whole NHS system around him and the American athlete's got the guy rubbing his hands together <laughs> and billing his HMO. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the tale of the tape. So first, thematic. Miyagi is a coach on and off the mat and teaches LaRusso balance. I think that is the key to this entire movie is that, quite frankly, Daniel is a very annoying kid. Uh, he's hot-headed. He, yes. he can't learn anything, it seems, at the beginning. And Miyagi teaches him, takes some time, think about it. Karate, the way he's teaching him, it is to defend himself. It is not to attack. And I think he says that in his magical way. <laughs> Fighting always last answer to problem. Karate for defense only. Karate here. Karate here. Karate never here. You understand? Yeah. <laughs> Which we'll get back into, but... <laughs> I think that balance is absolutely the narrative that the movie is putting down. I think it's a fundamental part of it. It's an interesting version of an underdog story. The next movie we're going to watch, Major League, is a bona fide underdog story. This is a weird underdog story. The reading said this is the book chapter about Avildsen because LaRusso is cool. He is like legitimately cool. Oh, I don't think he is at all. <laughs> See, he's he is annoying. I do yeah. think that he's hot-headed. I do think he's like selfish. I do think like he's uh, very confrontational is one thing that Mashio says a lot in interviews is how he views this character. And I think that comes through. 
but he is willing to, to go talk to the, the girl. He's new, but making friends pretty quick. He will punch the guy that tries to attack him. In Hollywood terms, he's not a nerd. He's not an outcast. He is an underdog in the movie, but he's not a classical one. What we do see that the chapter gives us the stencil for is that he's got the single parent. He's going to move. And gosh, when they move from New Jersey to California at the beginning of this movie, Biggs, I absolutely love it. We have to listen to the opening line from this movie because I don't have it written down this time. Here it is. Tony, don't forget to tell Uncle Louie that I left the red wine and the Parmesan in the refrigerator. Because they are Italiano. (laughs) Can I tell you, that reminds me of another classic movie. I'm talking about the 1930s Scarface directed by Howard Hawks. And there's a part where they go to lecture the audience. But then this Italian chef comes out and he looks like Chef Boyardee. You know what I mean? And he looks straight at the camera and he goes, it's a disgrace to my people. And I was just like, oh, no. (laughs) Like, it's that level of like, hey, don't forget the Parmesan. You know what I mean? It is incredible. Uh, And they move from New Jersey to California. California looking great. Doing great work throughout this movie. Uh, But to go back to this stencil of this quasi underdog he's out of place he gets bullied he gets rescued by a mentor the chapter says he has to surpass that mentor uh this is when he catches the fly in the chopsticks they say uh beginner's luck miyagi says but that's kind of what daniel's got going for him in a lot of ways i don't know there's going to be uh, a moment obviously where the underdog then becomes a champion he has to somehow prove that he is the champion and I think balance is the narrative that is used to propel that kind of stencil forward. And there's also just a theme that really jumped out at me this time, which is that we have to fight. And we're going to get into this uh, a little bit later, but it's just like one of the themes that I see linking the two of the projects that I'm working on, the Real War Project with Charles Horgan and this one, is uh, this idea that part of what makes a real man a man or even a real American American or just a, a hero a hero is that they are going to fight even really if they don't have to or may not win. Miyagi literally says it doesn't matter if you win or lose, just that you give them a good fight. Because if you give them a good fight, then they will respect you. Win, lose, no matter. You make good fight and respect. Then nobody bother. To you. And that's just a very constrained logic. Yeah. Um, and that like balance is kind of out of whack there. <laughs> well, I will say Daniel brings so much of this onto himself, too. Correct. He, he out Fair. he escalates it with Johnny at the very beginning. Yes. Later, when they're in the bathroom, like Johnny's going to the toilet and he puts a hose into it and drenches him. Daniel's doing all the things to create this fight, which is why it's important that Miyagi is teaching him balance because like <laughs> Daniel's going to keep finding chaos as long as he's doing this right yeah i just think it could teach him balance for those behaviors yes as opposed to balance to like punch the dude or crank kick the dude (laughs) yes but you are right like the movie frames it later that he has to go into that fight but he has to go in the fight because it's his fault to begin with there would surely be other ways to get out of that fight nodding but that's not the movie we're watching either (laughs) (laughs) again what would we do for act three he washes his car he paints his fence he does a bunch of things as Miyagi is like there don't you feel better and he's like oh man I do and the movie ends like I don't know that that's making 90 million dollars no no it's not <laughs> what are we gonna do with this song try to be best cause you're only a man and a man's <laughs> gotta learn to take it you're the best around mother's gonna ever keep you down you're the best around 
they're gonna fight, okay? What, they're teenagers? I don't care. Karate tournament, let's do it. <laughs> Miyagi accused of magical Asian trope. It's so interesting because it's it's obviously such a famous one. I found a review in the Journal of American Culture from June of 2011 of the book Yellow Future Oriental Style in Hollywood Cinema, and this is by Park, and this book was written in 2010. And the review does not tell me, um, wait, maybe it does here at the end. Scanning, scanning. Yes, Joy Taylor from Washington State University. Cool, is the person that wrote this review. And they do a great job of summarizing this book, which has a whole chapter on this movie because Miyagi is so important. And the review was so interesting, it prompted me to buy the book. And it says two things about this, Biggs. Number one is that, obviously, as you said, Miyagi as this kind of, quote, orientalist representation in Hollywood cinema is a whole boatload of stereotypes. In her chapter four, it says he's part of this, quote, oriental buddies version of orientalism. She offsets this from like the high tech orientalism that we see in movies like The Matrix or the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Um, and also like from like the displaced Asiatic other orientalism that we see when we see large cities of vaguely oriental people pushing carts very dirty. And this says it's the future and sci-fi and we're beyond ethnicities and things like that. Well, oriental buddies is a version of this. And she says the karate kid is a U.S. centric biracial buddy film marketing the transcendence of national racial and cultural differences through the mythologizing of Japan, whose culture, especially those traits associated with honor, integrity, and productivity, serves to resuscitate the Anglo-American spirit. Park suggests that the qualities attributed to the venerable Oriental monk, played by the late Pat Morita in The Karate Kid, are very similar to Hollywood's noble savage, who speaks with a thick accent, retains traditional values, and has a propensity for combat. Karate, yeah. Karate here. Karate never here dances with wolves, like its more recent counterparts uh, Save the Last Dance and The Last Samurai, uphold the structure of white privilege by presenting the illusion of racial quality vis-a-vis friendships that develop between an extraordinary white male or female and this racialized, orientalized other that is Marita. So the first thing is this kind of oriental monk character, and he is incredible in this movie. He is so good. So many things that I read just laugh lavished praise on his performance because it is moving <laughs> you know it's and iconic even i it mean is it, it truly is it is definitively iconic wax on wax off iconic crane kick iconic yep. it is all iconic and it is also <laughs> everything that we have just said that's how criticism works is it can be both of these things at the same time the second thing that we'll just briefly take up here is the kind of appropriation of karate the writer of this movie is a you know obviously non-japanese dude who just fell in love with karate uh, got like all these belts i don't know i can't say all the things but he's like a big deal i guess so this is an interesting thing i read was that his instructor did not believe in belts didn't care about that stuff which is why he has miyagi right. sli- uh, swipe the black belt because like right. he was trying to honor his instructor right. he was pulling from his life that. a little bit there there's a bunch of him talking about karate in the documentary and mm-hmm. how um you know he wanted to write karate movies and to you know like 
And it's just part of a very, very long trend of um, especially white men, especially wealthy white men, just taking on all of the trappings of Japanese culture that they can. And again, uh, in the language of this article, especially the traits associated with honor, integrity, productivity, and combat. <laughs> it's like they're going to collect the swords. They're going to wear the ponytail. They're going to have the garden with the tree. They're going to do all of that. And they're going to claim that it is all very deferential and it may well be. And they're going to claim that it is all out of genuine like respect and honoring of culture. And it may well be. Uh, when we watch Major League, we will watch a movie called In Whose Honor that will take up many of these arguments and say it doesn't work that way, though. You cannot reproduce a culture like karate in a movie like this without just getting your white settler colonial fingers all over it. And it really sings in a lot of ways in this movie. And the book kind of walks through some of those. Yeah. And let me give an example. So everything Miyagi says to Daniel that passes his wisdom sounds like a fortune cookie, right? Like the way that he says it. To make honey, young bee need young flower, not old prune. Daniel-san, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Man who catch fly with chopstick. Accomplish anything. Right. So some people may be like, well, why is that problematic? It's problematic because A, that's not how people talk. And B, fortune cookies were invented by white people in San Francisco. So, I mean, you're talking about keeping something onto a culture that didn't exist to begin with. To commodify a culture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a commodification. It's a tough one because it's a really good example. One of the things I say a lot is that propaganda works the best when it is delicious. When it comes to like Orientalism, it doesn't meet the strictest test of propaganda, obviously, but it is very propagandistic in the way that um, settler narratives, white supremacist narratives are going to replicate culture to make a buck. And boy, did this movie make a buck. <laughs> it made a bunch of bucks. So. <laughs> it's it's printing money still. Doing the same thing. It is replicating it again and again and again. When, when it comes to cultural criticism, we, we never say any one movie did it. Karate Kid did not do it. But Karate Kid definitely created an explosion of culture that a bunch of other people drew upon and, and borrowed and parodied and retranslated. And it is doing it to this day. And a, a franchise with that staying power is impressive. Local veterans face off, teens stand in as proxies. <laughs> So weird. So, okay, Biggs, the real war project is another show I'm doing with Charles Horgan. And we just finished season one, you know, because you were there for every single episode. <laughs> and, um, when it comes to this movie, there are shades. And I said that these tropes and, and narratives are going to overlap, which is why I'm studying all these things along with alienhood. And there's a lot of alienhood rhetoric in this movie, but we're not going to have time to talk about it today. How do you see Miyagi as the World War II vet and Kreese as what the vietnam commando uh how does that inform their um will to fight again this movie is about developing a will to fight two different versions good coach we said bad coach how does the militarism inform those roles in your mind i have a lot but i'm curious so to me crease feels like what you would think of the military in general always on the attack never get caught flat-footed right like it's right there in the motto for cobra kai that he sets up strike first strike fast no mercy right like that's essentially what we think of and a guy in platoon who's just you know screaming and leading off the charge with this machine gun he doesn't want to think about the policy 
politics of the thing. He just wants to get the job done. Guy. He's not Rambo, but he is a contemporary of Rambo's, correct? Like they have learned many of the same lessons about what it means to be a soldier. Is that fair? Rambo might be a bad example, but because uh, Rambo is pretty ruthless. <laughs> like Commando. How about that? Oh, interesting. <laughs> Schwarzenegger with the log on his shoulder. The log on the shoulder is amazing. Watch Commando just for that. Sorry, go ahead. Well, Rambo's an apologetic. I think Commando is more he's gung ho and goes into it. And I think that that's true. But my point was that I think Rambo's learned a lot of the same lessons. Here's my point. I think Miyagi is definitely a quote, greatest generation soldier, right? Yes. And he's a tragic version of that because he's winning a medal of honor fighting on the front while his wife is interned and dying in childbirth. One of the things that's interesting about representations of post-traumatic stress is that it will frequently be framed as something that has gotten over. Miyagi puts his medal in a box. It only comes out when he's drunk. Other than that, we would never know that this is part of his character. Very conventional framing of post-traumatic stress from the standpoint point of the so-called greatest generation narrative, but he is glorified and glamorized. He knows when to fight and how to fight, whereas Kreese's whole mentality is like the world is a battleground and we will kill all of the enemies and it is basically anyone that's not in this building. It's probably a commentary on the wars as well, if you think about it. This is what I'm saying is that in, in the 80s, you'll get a lot of lit. And we talked about some of it in Real War, where obviously when the 80s come along, there's a whole new vocabulary about what it means to be a veteran. And this movie's a real clear part of that, but just not mentioned among those movies in like the same breath. It's interesting. When I say this, this is not my feeling on it. This is just how I feel like it's typically framed around that time, which is that World War II was a war of necessity. Yeah, the good war, they call it. We were attacked. And so we were defending, whereas like Vietnam was a war of choice. I don't believe in that, but that is how it's often framed. And I think that's absolutely how it's framed in this movie. Definitely. And and the other angle on this fight for respect that I want is definitely the children fighting and <laughs> not just the children fighting, but Miyagi kicking the children <laughs> because he, can we just listen real quick? This is a veteran <laughs> and yeah, he's old, but he's capable of doing this, which makes me think like, I, he, does he enjoy this a little too much, Biggs? What do you think? Yeah, <laughs> <God>, dude. <laughs> He he kicks all of their ass completely. <laughs> I think a Star Wars is glorifying violence for young people because it makes it fun. It makes it adventurous. Charles says when you hear the Star Wars theme, you want the stormtroopers to show up because you know they're going to get blasted. This movie, when the, the skull bully showed up, that scared the crap out of me. I think that we have a myth from my youth. Anytime we heard a motorcycle in Helena, Montana, we would say the skulls are coming and we would all run for home. I do not know that this movie created that, but you know, dudes in skull costumes do ride a lot of motorcycles around in this movie. That is a very cool note for product placement, by the way, the motorcycles in this movie. I don't have the brand, but I read a lot about how they researched this and it did good things for the brand. The point is this. We've got these populations of children that are not only learning to fight, but being encouraged to fight and being told that they have to, that they really do have to. And as you said, the movie sets it up as though they have to. Miyagi admits they have to. Kreese is emphatic that they have to. The whole movie's like, you gotta, you, you have to, you gotta take that punch. Kreese is the reason why they have to in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You gotta know the punch is coming. So you step into it, you take that punch and, and if you have to, you finish it. And I don't care how injured you are. We will rub our hands together. <laughs> And you will go out there and you will fight. And this is a kid's movie. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm worried. All right, so let's review the timeline of LaBrusso's misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> this movie has at least two thick layers of it, right? Between his mom and Allie. Which one of these do you want to take up first? <laughs> I got a bit for the mom later on, so let's talk about Allie. Let's hyper-focus on her. <laughs> Elizabeth Shue is such an interesting actress because she was clearly established at this point. There's a fun interview with her on the Rich Eisen podcast where she talks about how she'd already been the Burger King girl. Well, I had been in the business for about five years before that, so it wasn't okay. sort of this sudden okay. experience. I was the Burger King girl. I did a lot of commercials. Okay. I sort of slowly, slowly, slowly learned my way into it america's practicing for their free whopper at burger king because this weekend only all you got to do is buy one whopper and say and get a second whopper and um she gets called to be in this thing called the karate kid and just like literally everyone in this movie she's like this sounds like a terrible movie i will take a paycheck but otherwise what if what have i done with my career (laughs) what am i doing i was worried i thought it sounded a little strange the karate kid yeah and ralph being Ralph, I didn't think that he would have any credibility as a karate expert. <laughs> wow. Ralph had no idea he's waking up today. He's going to get thrown under an Elizabeth Shoe bus. Sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, From the girl who was in a Burger King commercial, dude. <laughs> and, and she, I mean, by, by Hollywood standards, she has not made it. But compared yeah. to Ralph Macchio, like, she is working. She yeah, has yeah. been working. She has done all sorts of things. Um, And she's also a fairly capable athlete. There's a couple of things that I had read that said that she was very, very good at soccer. And in that interview, she talks about how she had to pretend to be bad at soccer so Ralph Macchio could teach her how to play soccer. I played a lot of sports growing up. What'd you play? Soccer. Okay. Yeah. I played on all boys' teams. You're rich karate kid. She plays soccer. Oh, yeah. I had to pretend to be bad in the karate kid. (laughs) (laughs) I had to pretend I didn't know what I was doing, but I was better than Ralph Macchio at soccer. (laughs) (laughs) And she said when she met Ralph Macchio, and she's very clear, she's like, I mean, no offense, but he just doesn't look like he can do karate. (laughs) He doesn't. Which is kind of the point. Which is the point. He's cast to be scrawny. He's cast to be that kid, but the frame of the movie is going to take a very very capable athlete is going to tell her to pretend to be bad at her sport so that she can be mansplained to by ralph macchio with the greatest soundtrack from the 80s playing over top put an audience going ah all the way through and then at the end when he wins her job is to run onto the mat with her arms out and weirdly you know like cishet straight kid like I remember that as a kid being like she's so happy he won it's the same way they greet Luke Skywalker when he blows up the Death Star everyone comes running out it's unfortunate because she's an incredible talent of the time maybe we should cast some athletes <laughs> but again that's not how it works in the 80s <laughs> I've seen athletes act it's not always the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I say in public speaking a lot is do not try to act unless you are an actor. Yeah. Do not act confident unless you are an actor. <laughs> the most egregious thing in this is that Daniel is constantly insulting her because he gets upset at her. Yeah. And then the next scene, she's always like, oh, it's fine. Like, she's just over it every single time. I'm like, that's not really how that works. She's treated like garbage. She's ogled throughout. The <laughs> The music when they meet on the beach is so on the nose. Like, the music is literally singing about what is happening while they are talking. It is so heavy-handed. <laughs> It's almost magic. 
she's like a 50s beach babe and that's like that's it and it's the 80s it's very frustrating i don't know one of the greatest athletes of all time although football destroys the brains of the people who play it jim also brown. an incredible actor jim brown like yeah real good at the acting wish he'd have done more of that and less of the bonky ball but i'm a cleveland fan and i'm gonna say that because chronic traumatic encephalopathy is bad go ahead he also famously quit football early he yeah. was at the peak of his career and stepped away and said i'm gonna be a movie star and everybody was like what and lost their mind and then he went into black exploitation films in the 70s so better career choice for him i mean it's exactly what you're saying he's so good in any given sunday he is so good in that movie i just love him in that movie he's a, a small part but real good let's talk about lucille for a minute randy heller dude she's the she, 80s mom she's really good at being understanding and taking all of his crap which is a lot of and it and that's all she does she basically just gets him a better life and then he heaps a bunch of insults on her and then she goes oh i'm sorry honey i should have consulted you you before i made a major life decision <laughs> took a job for like, more money so that you could do better like she came out to take a big technology job sounds like a pretty good choice she came out because she wanted to live in the climate of california as opposed to the climate of new jersey i'm a cold weather person but if that is your choice that's a good choice the climate here is very nice if you can afford the housing and you're right like she talks about how great it is and he's like this is the end of the line like he's just so mopey when when they have to like unpack she's like like, don't worry. She's like, you, you said I have to unpack. And she's like, don't worry about it. I'm like, you can make your kid unpack. Because like, big job. And she just kind of vanishes. Like, is she even at the tournament? I was thinking about this. I'm, I'm sure she. we see her there clapping at some point, but she's not, right? I, I do remember Elizabeth Shue running forward and being there and Marita because they both walk in there with him. Um, the last time I remember her is when she drops him off at the dance. That's it. Like, I can't really remember her in the movie after yeah. that because I feel like her usefulness for the movie is over at that point because now he's got his own car because he's with Miyaki. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so like he's just like, see that you later, mom. Is a dunk. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. We live in the same house, but I'm done with you. Her usefulness in the movie was this line from the beginning. Tony, don't forget to tell Uncle Louie that I left the red wine and the Parmesan in the refrigerator. And she nails it. <laughs> They are Italian. They are moving to California. Great work. One line cinched it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the excitement. So unorthodox training gets results. Waxing, painting, and crane kicks wins it all. But it is very fun to watch him have to do all these chores, but then suddenly realize that he can fight. And then watching Miyagi on the beach, because he's taking in a moment and paying attention, he's able to apply that later. It's a good lesson about sometimes being still and taking in the moment rather than trying to actively do things all the time, right? Yeah, I think that that's cool. I definitely didn't notice that until you pointed that out. And when we look at other movies and, um, you know, what it takes to pivot that protagonist, you know, you can always reverse engineer these moments. It's like, what is the moment that the, the symbols splash and the music says we did it and everyone leaps into the air. And in this case, it's when he crane kicks the guy. So then we can say, okay, so where did he see that? Where did he learn that? And it is watching Miyagi on a log. It's not a wax on wax off moment. That is very subtle. 
but significant. I mean, I think in a lot of movies, it'll be a realization that that character makes. For this one, when it comes to like focus, discipline, balance, it really gives you all of that. And balance, it's like great. I love the note that he was supposed to jump and kick with the same leg. And he's like, this is something that a writer would do <laughs> because that is physically <laughs> impossible. <laughs> so what we get is the crane kick, which does not work because he comes down on a leg that is supposed to like not be working. But um, hey, it looks great. <laughs> I also really want to talk about the shot when they enter the, the stadium. Oh, it's so good. Right? One of the most famous versions of a stadium shot is Gladiator when we get the 360 pivot and the, I did not know men could build such things. And we've talked, I do think we're going to talk a lot about like the gaze of the crowd. And this is such an intimate version of that. Like there are hundreds, maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred people tops inside this gymnasium watching this. It has a big scale. There's a lot of lights. There's a big board. Like there's an announcer. It, it is all big. When they come in, uh, they have this huge crane shot, more cranes. They have this huge crane shot that goes, it follows them as they walk in and then it goes way up in the air and you get this overhead shot of them walking in and you see people on mats and you see the crowd. And one of the notes I found was that it took 30 takes for that to get that right. And I tell my students that when it comes to making movies, one of the most interesting ways to really emphasize how produced they are is to imagine doing the same thing 30 times in a row. To imagine like if you are Allie, that you're coming through the door, like looking behind, like you just finished a conversation. You try to get Daniel's attention, but he's looking ahead. You look ahead, you look up, and then they say cut. And then you go back to one and you're ending a conversation as you come through a door. You try to talk to Daniel, but he's distracted because he's looking ahead. You look ahead, you look up and they cut and we're going to do it again. Like it's a lot. It's so much. But that shot goes by for such a short period of time, but it's huge. The affect here is scale. They're making the event enormous and exciting and the characters small. And where am I? Over here at this one? Hey, number three. Well, what's the guy kneeling like that for? Oh, no. Wait, don't you know anything you can tell me? Hey, I'll get the hit. Yeah. And we will see this in lots of ways throughout uh, this series. And this is a neat version of that for sure. I also like that at the tournament, they have the bracketing where you can see everybody go up. It's just a nice little visual with your montage to show how everybody's doing, where they're at in the tournament, right? Like you see one or two kicks and then like a hand raise up and then you see the board move. And so you can yeah. see where Johnny's being positioned and you can see where Daniel's being positioned because everybody else is fluff, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, we get another Cobra Kai guy and it's an influential scene or whatever, but like you really want to get down to like Johnny and Daniel. And so you can see it coming closer and closer out down. Really good movie way of showing that a tremendous backbone for a montage right a, an exceptional succinct way of showing like contest and victory and defeat and progress and getting closer to the goal uh, a nerdy thing that i do was coach speech and debate for a very long time and people will laugh when we call it a sport but it is in the 1940s was the first time that every college in america that wanted to could send a team to a national tournament and they would make a bracket and you would debate your way to the top of the mountain and it will take 16 rounds across three days and it is incredibly exhausting when you get towards the top because they're pretty smart and reading lots of things. It is so intense, Biggs. I, I know that you've had your brushes with brackets and climbing them in the past, but there's something about Not, not as those. much climbing. I played for the generals for a few years, so <laughs> we didn't really have a playoff system and I don't think we would have gone too far, but you know, we gave it our all. We would have been on the bracket. It just wouldn't have advanced too much. 
they bracket you to track your your defeats yeah. at the bottom. They're like, yep, they're still at the bottom of the league. Um, but it's intense because the first round, the second round, the third round are very different than round 12, 13, and 14. And one of the things my students learned fast is winning is cool, but the more you win, the harder it gets. And that will continue until the top. And that is in itself inherently exciting. It does not matter. It could be any sport on earth but it's like when we get to that thing called the semi-final i am eyeballs <laughs> glued to the thing because it's intense one more note on excitement i know we're running long gotta talk music we have to talk music we could not let joe bean as Pizzito off because this song right here freaking magic <laughs> like this was supposed to be in rocky apparently which is why it has the line history repeats itself in a movie that makes no sense with that line to be in it and they put it in this one rocky three by the way thank you <laughs> which would explain history repeating itself wouldn't make sense in the first one either it also has this ver- song called the moment of truth And when it comes to like 80s, just sounding pumped, this is how you do that right here. Yep, just put on your blue eyeshadow and rock out. All right, well, let's cut to a commercial break. Hey, listener, this is Aaron from Fields of Glory, and I'm sitting here with my co-host Biggs, and we want to tell you that if you've just not gotten enough of all of the wonderful ideas that he and I have to share about movies, have not gotten enough of us talking to people that we know to access their wonderful ideas about movies and other things, well, good news for you, we have a Patreon. We have a place that you can go to get all sorts of really cool content that you can't find anywhere else. Biggs, you want to tell them all the details about what's on there? Yeah, so we have four batch episodes for every three episodes where we do a theme, we break it down and figure out how all of them are alike yeah we've got five watch-alongs to the movies for the karate kid rudy the natural kingpin and the league of their own with a couple of guests sprinkled in there we've got a law zero episode from the original idea of what we were going to do in the show that we had to scrap because it was far too long yeah we've got expanded episodes for rocky rudy any given sunday and he got game we've got a hot take which is a fake sports show that we did back in the day we've got 11 real roulettes where we picked a movie at random and broke it down wild random chaos <laughs> we've got an episode of star trek versus star wars where we were comparing the two franchises we've got a that's debatable superman versus batman that's a total of 14 original episodes 27 all together with over 28 hours of content so please check out our patreon page and get all of it spanning all sorts of different movies biggs and i are interested in sports movies but we like to talk about other stuff too there are just so many cool guests there's so much cool content and you can find it on our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Fields of Glory. That's Patreon.com slash Fields of Glory. Go there and make a contribution. We are not wealthy people. We spend lots of time making the content that might have helped you do your dishes or drive somewhere that was not very entertaining or interesting. If you've enjoyed any of our content at all, if you want to find more, Patreon.com slash Fields of Glory. 
Okay, so MVP. I'm going to go Mr. Miyagi because he has a hero's journey at the same time that his student does, and you just don't see that very often in a movie. It's it's kind of spectacular. It's a very unusual thing to have two hero's journeys running at the same time. Absolutely, and he is iconic. From wax on, wax off, to literally him being the one that does the crane kick first. Daniel nails it in Act 3, but he learns it from Miyagi, and him doing it looks pretty good. Pat Morita, his journey as a performer is so interesting. We don't get to get into the stuff that he did in Happy Days and all of that, but um, some of the interviews with him are worth watching because just a really amazing performer, and he kills it in this movie. Yeah, and he proved it with this movie, too. Nobody was really taking him seriously outside of comedy, so... He had to, like, sneak in. He had to, like, change his name so that they would listen, watch him because they didn't think a comedian could do it, and... Joke's on them. <laughs> Let's go to the Six Man Awards. So I'm going to give it to the headband that Daniel's wearing. I don't know what you call that. I don't know why they designed it that way. I think it looks cool. It's probably somewhat racist, but... <laughs> oh, it is. I like it. Extre- and, and our desire for it, Biggs, I am celebrating this answer because I'm like, when I was a kid, I wanted this thing so damn bad. The first time we see it is when Miyagi is uh, trying to catch the fly with this. When he first meets him, he's wearing this thing for some reason. I'm like, why is he wearing that? What What is that doing on his head while he's trying to catch a fly with chopsticks at work? This is a really good answer. I really appreciate this answer, but I am definitely giving the six-man award to the state of California, not just because I live here, but also because it looks amazing. It's got a plaque that's like presented right at the beginning of the movie for no good reason. No good reason at all, dude. They just have a plaque. Well, because Hollywood is in California and we love ourselves to pieces. When I grew up in Montana, I just had this belief that California was cool. And still, to this day, I will be walking home from the grocery store and I will see any California kids doing anything. I'll be like, they're California. They're cool. Like I just think it's cool. And I blame movies like this because... Because it looks so good. From the dirt bikes on the beach with the fires and the volleyball to the All Valley Tournament where everyone in the valley is there. It's huge. There's no tournaments like that in Montana. You could go to the state championship in Montana and you could fit that whole thing in the bathroom of the All Valley Tournament going on here in California. Sorry. Let's move on to the Billy Zapka Most Outstanding Villain Award. Mm -hmm. So this is a bit of an upset. I'm going to give it to John Kreese because guess who created Billy Zapka? And Billy Zapka kind of does a heel turn and realizes that he was following the wrong guy and making the wrong decisions. And at the end, he says the legendary line, hey, LaRusso, you're all right. As he (laughs) hands him the trophy, dude. I don't know why they would give it to Johnny, but they gave it to Johnny to hand to him. Maybe it's because he was the previous champion. Maybe that's what it is. Actually, that would make sense. So there was a time time where I said Billy Zabka was going to win it for me and it was because he had the flicker of doubt and that made him really relatable like that moment that he had a flicker of doubt to me made him a relatable character which is good because we want a fallible villain but to me that makes him very embodiable and people could think he's cool and now he has his own spinoff and so it's almost like they want us to think he's cool we are definitely giving it to Crease because he is the best possible caricature of a villain to the chiseled jaw and the teeth that he grinds to dust every night cigar chomping his headband's just black <laughs> he's got all the camo and the m16 and he, oh yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> so black monday this is where we retain or fire the mentors of the movie so john crease you had one student get disqualified from the tournament for trying to intentionally injure his opponent then you had your other student in the finals try to sweep the leg when you could have seriously hurt him in the finals that sets up a crane kick which you clearly never taught him how to defend you better make sure your checks from the va are clearing because you're not getting another one 
one for me. No Mercy is just not very sporting and also, frankly, a liability. <laughs> so, <laughs> our insurance just won't let us retain you. Have a good day. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi, sure, you coached a winner, but you beat up a collection of minors. You forced your student to do hard labor. You had an alcoholic drink with him. You gave him a car, which looks like the move of a grooming pedophile. And you stole someone's black belt to get him in a tournament. I hope you held on to your handyman's job because you ain't keeping this one. It's so amazing that he is seen as like the mentor. And if you stop and make a list, it's not good. No. It's not good. He's he would be on a list. <laughs> like the movie wants us to love him. And I do. And it does. It makes me think of In Whose Honor because there's this moment where they're talking about this mascot and everyone's like, but we love our mascot. And Charlene Teeter says, of course you love him. You made him to be loved. That is why you made him. And Miyagi was made to be loved. And um, he's definitely not going to be a coach for me if I can help it. Mm-mm, not with these outcomes. Like the, the trophy is nice, but uh, like slapping your hands together for a kid that's clearly wounded and sending him back. Insurance just won't let us retain no. you. It's expensive. No, it's it's yeah. expensive. Can't even imagine the deductible. <laughs> Do you know how much you have to charge for annual like student fees in order to just meet that deductible, let alone rent for your <laughs> studio in LA? Like, come on, man. <laughs> the poll question Who would you fear in a dark alley the most? A. Cobra Kai. B. The Los Angeles Cobras. C. Cobra Commander. Or D. Marion Cobretti from Cobra. So those are your choices. You can vote on these at anchor.fm slash fields of glory. We'll be back next week covering our series of influential movies with Major League. But coming up next, Jaja Gabor guest stars as a KGB agent that infiltrates a jazzercise class, and only Amanda can suss her out. Tune in for an encore core episode of Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Win, lose, no matter. You make good fight and respect. Then nobody bother. Check out all the podcasts brought to you by Redwood Sound Labs. Finally, a podcast that's dedicated to talking about your favorite sports movies. Whether you want to hear a breakdown of the plot, arguments about who's the MVP of the film, or crit and lit about it, you'll find it all on Fields of Glory. Listen to the show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in the podcast Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two horror movie enthusiasts of varying experience discussing horror movies through the scope of content, context, and comedy. They'll hit on the good ones and the classics, but they're really excited for the bad ones. Listen to Watch No Evil. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. 